At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the Grow Your Own Food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Carol Deppie to talk about her experience with the Eat All Greens Growing Method. Organ plant breeder Carol Deppi holds a PhD in genetics from Harvard University and specializes in developing open source varieties of crops for organic growing conditions, sustainable agriculture, and human survival for the next thousand years. She is the author of The Tao of Vegetable Gardening, Cultivating Tomatoes, Greens, Peas, Beans, Squash, Joy, and Serenity, The Resilient Gardener, Food Production and Self-Reliance in Uncertain Times, and Breed Your Own Vegetable Varieties, The Gardener's and Farmer's Guide to Plant Breeding and Seed Saving. You can visit her website, caroldeppy.com, for her seeds, books, and further adventures. Welcome to the show today, Carol. Glad to be here, Greg. Thank you. And I, I got to tell you, I'm a big fan. I've read all of your books and I am so excited to have you today. So thank you for being here. I'm delighted to be here. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now? Well, <laughs> the path I took thought was uh, I was going to be a uh, Nobel laureate molecular geneticist. Wow. Not not a farmer and not a uh, plant breeder and certainly not a writer uh-huh. uh, when I was uh, in school. I did almost everything I could to avoid any possible writing project. <laughs> I understand uh, that one. So I, you know, I ended up being a writer. I earned part of my living from writing and part of my living from breeding plants and I didn't really intend any of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, uh, was on the faculty in genetics at University of Minnesota for a while. I would say one of the uh, strangest parts of the whole story was that I was attracted to biology in general because I love to be outdoors and just mm. be out in mm-hmm. the woods and and walk along creeks and and uh, you know squat next to the edge of a pond and look at all the little things yes. in the shallow water. Uh, and then uh, in college, I got very turned on about molecular biology because that was kind of the big hot subject of the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but I paid absolutely no attention to the fact that if you're a molecular biologist, you spend about 16 hours a day in a laboratory. In a lab, exactly. In a laboratory without windows, mm-hmm. uh, generally speaking. It didn't work. It was not a clever decision. I, <laughs> and I think I would have... Uh, if I, these days when students ask me uh, uh, for advice about uh, 
career choices and things, I, I say pay attention to your basic biological and emotional and psychological needs, not just what the subject matter is attractive. Uh, and if, in fact, you love to be outdoors, find something where the, where the research part of the activity takes you outdoors. Mm-hmm. Uh, gardening is wonderful. Plant breeding, I spend a lot of time outdoors. Perfect. So it, it, that's been a long path from molecular biology to seed saving. Can you kind of elaborate on that a little bit more? Well, uh, I have one other thing I would say about the whole thing is one of the, the lessons in it uh, for me, uh, I had started off being interested in, in science of all sorts uh, as a child. Mm-hmm. I read a whole lot, so I started off in university way advanced uh, and and I moved into graduate school at about the right time finished everything early you know I was on the faculty at uh, the first woman everything in genetics at University of Minnesota at mm-hmm. the age of 26 which is way early wow then then when I when I changed fields and dropped out of the academic world and started gardening and doing plant breeding, I was way behind everybody. That was a bit disconcerting, I'll tell you. Mm-hmm. Kind of a, a blow to the ego. Uh, now looking back on it, uh, it was probably real good for my personality. Mm, yes, <laughs> I can understand that. <laughs> on top of it, uh, yeah, I ended up finding out that uh, it doesn't really... Uh, it's not the end of the world if you make some wrong choices along the way. And mm-hmm. even if you put 10 or 20 years into the wrong choices, uh, there's still plenty of time to make useful contributions. Boy, I heard that. I spent 22 years in technology in the 80s and 90s, and now I'm back in the garden, thank you, gosh. Right. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm looking at your bio, and I'm really curious about something. It says here on your website, new varieties Carol has developed. These are varieties of plants. Exactly. Like squashes. You, you develop two, two new squashes. How do you do this? <laughs> well, it, it, uh, it can happen various sorts of ways. The main things I've bred, uh, in fact, everything I've bred so far, uh, is uh, corn, beans, and squash varieties. Uh-huh. Uh, one of the things I tell people is that the, my corn and squash varieties I've actually bred on purpose. Uh, the bean varieties just sort of happen. Mm. Uh, you know, I was minding my own business trying to grow out a pure bean of a certain variety Right. Uh, that's a gold bean uh, called gaucho. It's an Argentine heirloom bean. Mm-hmm. And uh, in about a 20 pound lot of, of gauchos that I had grown uh, there were uh, about 50 or so white seeds uh, and presumably all from one plant uh, you know that represented a new mutation or a new combination in there uh, the plants looked identical to the gaucho uh, you know except that they were different color and that Interesting. Gave them a completely different flavor Oh, so I, wow. did, I, you know, I did the obvious thing. I just saved those seeds and planted them separately. Right. Presto, I had a new variety. It wasn't even my idea. <laughs> just fo- You just <laughs> I, followed nature. 
yeah, I call this, uh, you know, plant breeding by just noticing things. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I, I teach and I teach and study permaculture, and really the bottom line in permaculture is observation. Mm-hmm. You know, pay exactly. attention. Yeah. Then one of the other main methods of plant breeding is uh, you've got some idea of some variety that you'd like. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, with my uh, my corn my flint corn cascade ruby gold corn which is uh-huh. uh, great uh, for uh, cornbread and for polenta it has uh, ears that range from deep red to orange to brown to gold and each each ear is a solid color and each ear has got a different flavor oh wow so, so you get lots of different flavors from one corn patch uh-huh uh, and the uh, the variety is very early, and it's a very pure flint type. So it, it not only gives you great uh, cornbread, it gives you absolutely marvelous polenta. Uh, and uh, I'm uh, gluten intolerant, so uh-huh. having really great corn All right. <laughs> matters a, exactly. a lot to me. Well, there was one variety that uh, I loved the flavors and the colors, uh, but uh, it had very poor husk coverage and and I didn't like the interior color either. So I crossed it to another variety that had most of the same good characteristics, but uh, uh, had better husk coverage uh, and better interior color. Mm-hmm. And of course it had some flaws too. So it was a matter of finding two parents that could correct each other. Oh, interesting. Uh, and so I, I crossed those and by crossing those, I don't mean I did anything fancy. I mm-hmm. mean, I just planted alternate rows of the two. Oh my gosh, okay. Uh, <laughs> and let the deeds all kind of mix together over a few years and, mm-hmm. and selected out the new type that I wanted that had the best characteristics of both both varieties. And all the way along, the material was completely edible, and I was eating delicious cornbread the whole time, so uh, in, a, in a sense, it really didn't cost me anything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, my friend Bill McDormand says, go ahead and breed away and grow out and undo hybrids and do heirlooms and do all that. And, hey, the worst case scenario is you get to eat it. Yeah, exactly. Get to eat it. So you mentioned the word heirloom, and I don't want to go past that. Would you please explain what heirloom, and it, as it applies to seeds, is? Oh, usually what we mean by heirlooms is a. it's a little vague. It's a variety that's been... Uh, passed down over the generations of human beings, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been around for a while. It's it's proved to have been valuable to a lot of people over a, a period of time. This is exactly the same concept as an heirloom uh, table, for example. Oh, yeah. uh, this, this, this has lasted, and people have valued it over a period of time. And it gets a little bit vague because... People often think of the cutoff as being about 50 years, but as, but but it was almost 50 years ago that they started saying that. So now a whole lot of stuff <laughs> read by university breeders is now now gets called heirlooms. Oh right. Uh, and they're wonderful varieties, but uh, no, we know exactly who bred them. And <laughs> yeah. Perfect. So I said in your bio. Uh, we're going to talk about an eat all greens method. I'm assuming that's a method of growing. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, this all started. 
another another one of these things that was a complete accident. It it, it seems like almost everything that uh, <laughs> I figure out in the garden that's the most important uh, is uh, something that uh, was the idea of the plants, or it was completely accident, not really anything that I designed uh-huh. uh, liberally. Uh, but what happened was, um, at the time, uh, and this was decades ago now, uh, I was living uh, in the middle of Corvallis, in uh, uh-huh. the inner corner of two busy streets, and I had just a few square feet to garden on. Uh, and I didn't have a car in that era either. Uh, and uh, I needed some compost to add to my little gardens. So uh, I had a couple of cubic yards of compost delivered and put on the concrete driveway. Oh, my gosh. Using. That's, that's a lot of compost. Yeah, and uh, but it was cheaper by the yard. Of course, absolutely. <laughs> it was a nuisance to arrange for. So, so anyway, I wasn't going to need it for a couple of months. And I had no more had this compost delivered than I stood there looking at this pile of compost on the driveway and looking at my tiny, tiny little garden bed. <laughs> <laughs> and realizing that if I just spread the compost around a little bit further on the driveway, I could just about double my gardening space. Oh, <laughs> you know, nice. At least, for a couple, at least for a couple of months. Right. Uh, so, uh, you know, in, in about two minutes, I had spread that compost on the driveway. Uh, and uh, okay, it was mid March. So, what can you grow in mid March in Corvallis, Oregon? Mm-hmm. Well, a green wave mustard was one of my favorite varieties of uh, and and favorite greens. So, I sprinkle the green wave mustard seed uh, on the just broadcast it. Uh, and since it rains regularly in mm-hmm. uh, March in in Oregon, I didn't even water it. Uh, I never weeded it. I uh, didn't expect to since it was, you know, compost. Right. Uh, and it just grew, and I did absolutely nothing. <laughs> uh, and in about six weeks, I had uh, you know, wonderful plants that actually, I had accidentally planted them at a, a unique distance uh, apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of growing the way they usually did if you spread them out more, where they have a, a tough stalk and you pick individual leaves. Right. That's your harvest. Uh, instead, the plants grew uh, much more erect, and every single leaf was edible, and the oh. central stalk was succulent. Uh-huh. So I could come in there with a kitchen knife mm-hmm. and just uh, clear cut. Oh. That makes and perfect everything, sense. Yeah, everything above about three or four inches from the ground, mm-hmm. the plants were about 16 inches or so uh, tall. Uh, and green wave produces a really substantial plant. That's you, it, It's not like spinach. It's not mostly air and water. It's, right. it's, it's really substance. Uh, and it was not that big a patch, but for the first time in my life, I actually had as much greens as I wanted. And I, I ate almost a pound of greens every day for a for a couple of weeks, uh, and then I, I harvested all the rest and froze it. It was absolutely wonderful. So it, up until then, I'd sort of thought, and I'd done nothing at all except sprinkle the seeds and right. harvest it. I'd done no weeding, nothing wow. else. Um, it turned out that uh, 
the compost wasn't was not an essential part of things. Uh, you could do exactly the same thing with uh, any good garden soil as long as you uh, pick the right plants. And, right. You know, the work of the next twenty years to figure out what <laughs> with other, the right plants. What other varieties you could do this with? <laughs> and order. For it to work, you have to have play, uh, uh, the right crop of greens and mm-hmm. the right specific variety so that it it grows very, very rapidly so it can outgrow any weeds. Right. Uh, and the plant form has got to be erect enough so that when they're at this magical density of about three or four inches apart in all directions, uh that the plants will hold each other up well enough mm-hmm. so that the leaves and the central stem all stay essentially above the mud zone. <laughs> right. And when they're grown that way, they have to have a succulent stem and all the leaves be edible, uh, and it has to be able to produce a large amount of biomass in a short time. Mm-hmm. And I used as the standard uh, that they need to be able to grow uh, at least 12 inches high or higher uh, in two months or less. Uh, and that means you can actually get four or five uh, secessional crops from the same piece of land. Oh, my gosh, right. Uh, so you're talking about just a tremendous amount uh, of uh, greens for just an ordinarily small amounts of labor. Uh just a complete game changer in terms of green growing, greens growing, mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned. And even though I have plenty of land now, this is still my preferred way of growing greens because uh, the rest of the year, that is to say not spring, uh-huh. uh, we don't have rain here, uh, you know, the rest of the summer. So uh, when you grow greens, there's always a watering issue. Of course. And and um, so being able to get the maximum yield from the minimum amount of space means mm-hmm. that you've got a restricted uh, space that you're watering and really paying attention to in terms of that water issue. Uh, and that makes it much easier to grow greens with less water and less irrigation. You're right. just irrigating this restricted space. Uh so the the, and, the the method itself is high density, and you're picking varieties of greens that, uh, when they're high density, they grow tall and hold each other up. And that they produce, and they, they grow very fast, and they're completely succulent, you know, when you clear cut them so that when you, you know, grab a swath of uh, vegetation and, and, uh, and chop it off at... Uh, at the base right. with a serrated kitchen knife that everything in the in your hand is edible. Nice. So then you just take it into the kitchen. You don't even have to wash it. You can just lay it on a on a uh, carving board and, mm-hmm. and run your knife through it at one inch intervals uh, and uh, boil it up or drop it in soups or freeze it or what you know dry it whatever you want to do with it. Uh, and you just got a tremendous amount of food. Wow. So where do, where do we find more out about this method? Well, I have a whole chapter on this uh, in the Dow Vegetable Gardening, uh, specifically on this method and on the kinds of uh, crops and the kinds of varieties that you can, uh, you can do it with. It, 
you know, after that initial trial, uh, the first couple of times thereafter that I tried it with, just to repeat it with green wave mustard, I didn't even get that right. Because uh-huh. I, it took a while to figure out the right sowing density for mm-hmm. the plant, right time of, ye- time of year for any specific one of these crops. Uh, but I got to where I could reproduce that, uh, and then I expanded... I've probably tried at least 200 different varieties. Oh, nice. You know, at least 15 or 20 different species. Uh, And some of them, uh, amaranth, for example, Mm -hmm. uh, one of the ones that I sell through my little seed company is really great as an eat-all greens, is burgundy amaranth. Uh, It's uh, usually thought of as a grain type, but the grain types produce greens that are every bit as good as the ones that are usually thought of as greens types. Right. They grow a whole lot faster and a whole lot better. Uh, and instead of just completely clear-cutting them for greens, you can sort of selectively clear-cut them and use and leave a few plant space properly to go ahead and give you an amaranth grain crop too. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's fun because that replaces your seed. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, another one of the ones I like a lot is uh, uh, Tokyo Bacana, which uh, is actually a very fast-growing, loose-leaf Chinese cabbage. Oh, nice. It do anything. It, it's the mildest flavored. You know, it's got that Chinese cabbage flavor mm-hmm. instead of a, more of a mustardy or, you know, brassica-type flavor. It's more like a lettuce. Right. Uh, and it's a beautiful chartreuse color that's so glorious. I I like to use it as a uh, little patches here and there just, just to enhance the beauty of the garden. Oh, yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So this is out of the Tao of Vegetable Gardening, cultivating tomatoes, greens, peas, beans, squash, joy, and serenity. And that's a uh, Chelsea Green publication. Came out just uh, just a little under a year ago, it looks like. Um, can you tell us more about your book? It's got this chapter in it. It's got a humongous big chapter on tomatoes in it. Um, I'm sort oh my of gosh, yes it does. Chapter 7. <laughs> yeah, I'm sort of a tomato freak. Nice. <laughs> and, and of course, uh, any any book that uh, I write, write, I take it for granted that in the first place you're gardening organically and in the yep. second place you are interested in seed saving. You oh, may yes. or may not save all of your own seeds, but right. you'd like to at least know how. Yeah. Uh, and so, of course, you're going to care about that. And I also take it for granted that uh, it's, uh, it's a nature-given right of all of us gardeners and, and farmers to uh, breed new varieties. Mm-hmm. So there's always things about plant breeding in there, too. Uh, so in the tomato chapter, for example, one of the big things I'm worried about now is the uh, the problem with late blight. Yep. Uh, late blight is getting to be such uh, the, the varieties are so much more virulent now than they used to be. Mm-hmm. And the uh, two mating types have now spread uh, around uh, and are spreading around the world. So the instead of there just being one. Uh, so the uh, late blight is going to be evolving much more rapidly, too. It's already the case in large swaths of Europe um, that people cannot grow heirloom tomatoes outdoors at all now. Oh, wow. Uh, 
because they uh, are not late blight resistant. Basically, none of the heirloom tomatoes are late blight resistant. Mm-hmm. Uh, have enough late blight resistance to really matter. That is. Well, so there there are a bunch of genes um, that are are able to confer light blight resistance, but they're pretty much all in commercial hybrids. Mm. Commercial hybrids pretty much all taste lousy. Right. Uh, so obviously what we want is to have the wonderful flavor of our favorite heirloom, for example, whatever that is, uh, combined with some of these genes for late blight resistance. Uh, so one of the things that I talk about and describe and encourage or encourage people to do is I say basically if you, you want to be able to grow heirloom tomato flavors outdoors you're going to need to help produce a whole new generation of heirloom tomatoes Seeds. basically right. <laughs> by taking the late blight resistance genes from these uh, these commercial bred you know hybrids mm-hmm. uh, and combining them with the flavor of uh, the heirlooms, and the simple way to do that is you just start crossing the two. Cross-pollinating, exactly. I wanted to make sure that we create, created clarity around that, that it's a, it's a pollination process, and that's it, right? Yeah, and you, so you ha- hand-pollinate, and mm-hmm. I describe how to do it, but there's also, I also just give links to uh, uh, places where you can see photographs on exactly how to hand-pollinate, uh, how to do tomato crosses, basically. Uh, and then I described the whole various breeding projects that you can do that would help you, uh, you know, guide, guide somebody in trying to create their new, essentially the heirloom tomatoes of tomorrow. Right. Perfect. And, and I just want to call out, that was chapter seven. And this is, you're right, that is a huge chapter. I'm looking in your book right now. A huge chapter on tomatoes. And then chapter 10 is called Effortless Effort. The Eat All Greens Garden. And so there's, looks like there's a ton of information in there too. So if you're interested in finding out more information on the Eat All Greens Garden, you can check out Carol's book, The Tao of Vegetable Gardening from Chelsea Green Publishing. So I, I, there's one more thing that before we jump into the next section of, of our talk, I really want to talk about the Open Source Seed Initiative. What is it? What it's about? How are you involved? <laughs> I'm a, I'm involved in about every way you can be involved. <laughs> thank, thank you then for doing that. Uh, I uh, in in fact uh, when I was uh, at University of Minnesota, I was uh, I went in in the era in which I was the first woman everything you know the first oh, yes. woman on the uh, faculty mm-hmm. uh, in my department and so on and. Uh, in that sort of situation, you get put on every conceivable committee. <laughs> right. And so when I left the university world, um, I I had s- certain goals that were actually pretty simple and straightforward, and one was to never be on another committee again as long uh, as uh, I uh, uh, Heard that. And, and, and I actually managed to succeed at that goal for about 30 years. Uh-huh. An open source seed initiative came along. Uh, and... Uh, Oh, <laughs> well, all I can say is I'm on the board of directors. I've open source pledged all my own varieties. Perfect. My, my own seed company has joined as an open source partner seed company. Um, 
I'm about as far in as you can, you can, <laughs> you get. can get. Well, it, I'll tell you what, you are playing Especially some with... laugh at me. <laughs> yeah. You're playing with some rock stars um, on the board. I'm scrolling down through the list of people on the board. Who who are you on the board with with that organization? Well, Jack Kloppenberg is uh, the fellow who wrote uh, uh, First to Seed back in 1988. Uh-huh. Yep. Uh, and... Uh, basically, in that book, he documents the what amounts to the history of loss of of gardeners and farmers' control over seeds and seed mm-hmm. rights. Yeah. Uh, the basic problem we have now, I mean, it used to be for the first 10,000 years of farming, basically, when we got our hands on a seed, we could do anything we wanted with it. Right. Could grow it. We could save the seed. We could replant the seed. We could give seed to our friends or sell the seed. We could use the seed to grow to breed new varieties of our own. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, if you go and buy uh, some corn seed from one of the mega gene giants, uh, you've generally got a, a hybrid that's uh, genetically modified, so it's it's both a hybrid and it's patented. Uh, and you and it has a bag tag agreement on it, basically saying you don't own this seed at all. You you're agreeing that all you get to do with it is to grow it for one year for a food crop only. You cannot replant yep. it. You cannot um, save the seed. You cannot give any of the seed to anyone. You cannot breed anything new from it. Uh, this is uh, you. We talk about commons, you know, as Space, like we all get to breathe the air, for yep, example. Exactly. Uh, and once upon a time in, in Europe and in Britain, uh, there were vast tracts of land that, uh, if you lived in that area, you were allowed to use that land in certain ways. Mm-hmm. And and then uh, the politics changed, and and uh, powerful land owners got uh, too much uh, power. And they essentially stripped the ordinary people of all of their rights to that commons and, and essentially enclosed it and uh, mostly turned it into sheep pasture uh, that was owned and controlled by by the land big landowners. Mm-hmm. Exactly the same sort of thing has been happening the last 20 or 20 to 40 years with, with seeds. respect to our seed sovereignty yeah. commons. Uh, we're losing all of those rights, uh, and a lot of us just can't stand that. <laughs> it's time to fight back. Yep. Uh, so I became uh, very concerned about this issue uh, more than 20 years ago, and that was actually one of the main reasons why I, I uh, wrote Breed Your Own Vegetable Varieties, uh, was that uh, I could see that increasingly the big seed companies and the universities were breeding varieties that were proprietary, that um, control of the seed was not going to be in the hands of the gardeners and farmers anymore, uh, that we couldn't do anything with it except just use it temporarily uh, for certain things. We couldn't breed from it, we couldn't save it, we couldn't replant it, etc. So I basically said, well, if if that's the way they want to roll, uh, I'm not only going to create public domain varieties myself, varieties that I breed that I deliberately release 
to be to be open to everyone to use however right. they want. But on top of that, I'm going to write a book <laughs> teaches lots and lots of people how to do this plant breeding stuff uh, so that any gardener and any farmer can do this. I'm going to see if I can't help raise up a whole generation of people uh, who can can do this uh, and can create varieties uh, that are open to public, completely open to public use. Well, that actually sort of happened. A lot of people read that book. A lot of people got interested in uh, in plant breeding uh, from that book and from other things that were happening. Mm -hmm. So there's actually uh, a whole movement now of gardeners and farmers who are creating their own varieties. I love that. The problem is, when they're released as public domain varieties, the, the gene giants can come in and take that material and and incorporate it into proprietary varieties of their own. We can't do the reverse. So So is there something we can do about that? Yeah, so there's a constant drain of germplasm in one direction with things getting more and more privatized. Uh, so the open source is a different kind of model. <coughs> Instead of releasing things as a public domain variety, uh, we release them as an open source variety, and and it goes along with a pledge. So basically, if you buy one of my packets of seeds, mm -hmm. that's one of the ones I bred, uh, it's it's so called Aussie pledged or open source pledged, and it comes along with a uh, a pledge that says basically you can do anything you want with this seed. Uh, except that you agree to not restrict it with patents or other... Nice. So so basically, and you agree to pass that pledge along with the seed. So the idea is the same as for uh, open source software licenses. Right. Any Anyone can use it in any way they want, including make derivative works from it, but any derivative work has got to be licensed under the same terms. So the idea is not simply that the variety is released under those terms. It's that the, the variety and all of its progeny and all of its derivatives in terms of other varieties that are bred from it uh, also are covered by that play. Right, perfect. But the idea is they spread virally. Uh, I've had people ask me, uh, you know, to what extent is this... Uh, 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 legally binding I think it's probably not um, but I don't think it makes any difference because uh, we're not likely to sue one of the gene giants anyway right uh, but they are influenced by moral outrage yeah uh, isn't that the case so so what we need is to be all we really need is to create an ethical position uh, we, we actually had a there's been an, a recent article in one of the professional journals by some corn breeders at Monsanto, and uh, they have a whole section on, on the open source movement. Uh-huh. Uh, really? And they thought we were awful. And uh, <laughs> Of course. And I, and, and I thought, well, that's wonderful. We're obviously doing something right. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. <laughs> and, and they said that uh, open source seed was... Uh, was too infectious to touch and i said wonderful they get it <laughs> nice so what is, the open source open source uh 
seed initiative is is about creating a protected commons that is open to only other people who are willing to share to play with it as well yeah. well what keeps and what the uh, website for it is is o s s e e d s dot org open source seeds dot what pre what what prevents them from jumping in and and taking it and patenting it just an ethical commitment yeah um that <clears throat> uh that basically they'd look really foolish getting caught at it, mm -hmm. and I think there would be a tremendous amount of outrage. Oh, but yeah. What we do is is we pledge varieties based upon the authority uh, of their breeders. So um, the breeder, him or herself, mm -hmm. um, signs a document that says, I so and so as the breeder or co-breeder of the varieties listed below, uh, below hereby designate them as open source pledged varieties. Uh, wow! And then, you know, How reads cool to a is that? Bunch of things, which includes that that they will only transmit that seed of that material with the pledge. Right. Uh, and then everyone who gets that gets it with the pledge that requires them to transmit that only with the pledge with the pledge uh it's it's pretty dynamite and we, how we beautiful are is that point. yeah this last year uh, open source seeds initiative has really taken off and uh you can look in uh, all kinds of major seed catalogs. Yep. You know, many many of the smaller seed companies, of course, including my own Fertile Valley Seeds, but companies like uh, Nichols Garden Nursery, yep. uh, Fedco, Southern Exposure, uh, High Mowing, Exchange, High Mowing, yep. uh, Organic Seeds, uh, Bountiful Gardens, uh, Adaptive Seeds. These are all open source partner seed companies. Mm -hmm. that all of them sell open source varieties. All of them have the pledge listed right in their catalog. Nice. Uh, and we've got uh, the cover story on, in Acres USA right now is about uh, open source seed initiative. And uh, a month or so ago, an issue or so ago, the uh, the major news story in Mother Earth News was on open source uh, seed. Nice. We're, we're well above 300 varieties of open source seed uh, pledged uh, wow. varieties at this point. Uh, they're coming in so fast, we don't even have them all on the website. Oh, wow, cool. Uh, but anyone can go to the website, see a complete list of all of the varieties, all of the, most of the varieties yeah, exactly. that are open source pledged. Uh, with complete descriptions and photographs mm -hmm. uh, of them, and then under each variety description, there is uh, a list of all of the Aussie partner seed companies that carry they that carry variety. Them. I see that live link direct to those seed companies. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. So that is o s s e e d s dot org. That's it. Perfect. So I'm going to shift a little bit on you, and I, I have a couple other questions. Um, and I, I want to know what you consider your biggest success. Uh, I uh, think all of the three books that uh, I've written, uh, each each book, no, past successes don't really cut it for 
for us humans by and large. Yeah. Usually just the recent, the most recent success mm -hmm. uh, that actually registers emotionally that much. Uh, and uh, for me, each one of those books has been uh, a major, uh, a major thing. A major, wow, um, cool. But, but I also really just love uh, breeding the, the plants mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, conceiving of something uh, <laughs> was different and better, at least for my purposes, than, uh, than anything else in existence. Right. Uh, and actually being able to pull that off and then turn around and be able to release the seeds and to be able to Aussie pledge the seed as mm -hmm. a form of release. I mean, what could beat that? No kidding. No kidding. <laughs> I just want to review real quick, and I'll read them. Uh, breeding, Breed Your Own Vegetable Varieties uh, came out in 2000. Um, it looks like The Resilient Gardener came out in 2010, and then The Tao of Vegetable Garden came out in 2015. Those were all from Chelsea Green. So thanks to you and Chelsea Green for getting your great work out there. And so my next question for you is, what drives you? Like, what's your big why? I think uh, I, I am sort of a curiosity with the skin on it. Uh -huh. I, I've, I've, I've just got this incredible curiosity about things. Uh, so that's a big motivator. But uh, another huge motivator for me is... Uh, simply that I enjoy the act of gardening itself. Oh, yes. Uh, but uh, I just really enjoy food, you know, fantastic food. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> you know, being, being able to use my creativity to create even more fantastic food. Yeah. Well, I love gardening, I, uh, I'm as lazy as, uh, as, uh, as gardeners come, basically. What I really enjoy is getting absolutely wonderfully delicious food in very large quantities for as close to no work as possible. Yeah. Uh, and the Greens Garden uh, method of growing things, you know, up until then, I had, I had always figured that growing tasty vegetables took a certain amount of work, and then all of a sudden I... I had a completely different standard. I said, well, maybe you don't have to do any work at yeah. all. You know, Maybe all you really have to do if you've bred the right things into the varieties or chosen the right varieties and the right methods, maybe all you have to do is to sprinkle the seeds around and then come <laughs> back in six or eight weeks and harvest it all. Uh, nice. But some of, some, some of the uh, things that drive me are really personal. I think this is true with a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I'm gluten intolerant. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> you know, corn, absolutely delicious, fantastic corn with wonderful flavors for making great cornbread and polenta. Uh, that's a really major part of my life. Uh -huh. That's a major part of my diet. Uh, and so just being able to figure out, uh, you know, produce a new variety and then then be able to figure out how to turn that, to use a recipe that turns the, turns that into an all corn cornbread oh no nice. binders right and no other grains that actually holds together well enough so that you can make sandwiches out of it oh you know the first time that i was able after 
10 years of doing without to simply make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I'm such a simple-minded, ridiculous thing, peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You but know? with bread that holds but, together, though, that's the... <laughs> well, there's a there's a trick to it, and, and that is you... Uh, you add some boiling water to part of the cornmeal and essentially make a glue, and you use that glue uh, to find the whole rest of the corn, corn together. Uh, of course. And hold bubbles in, and that way you don't need any artificial binders. And, of course, you've got some egg in there, too. Right, exactly. Too. Uh, exactly. That's the basic trick. It actually works for any of the gluten-free grains. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, you don't really need all these you know, weird or artificial or, or weird combinations of bean flours and so forth and so on. You can use things like pure oat flour and pure corn flour and and so on and make, you know, and make uh, baked products that really taste good compared to anything that you can make with, oh, yeah. uh, with uh, commercial gluten-free flours. Fantastic. Fantastic. So I'm all about education, and I have to know, what book has been most influential for you in your seed-growing gardening process? Well, uh, there's definitely been one book that's mattered the most in my life, and that's Tao Te Ching. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Uh, I can get that. It's not really a, a gardening book. It's, uh, it's Tao Te Ching. And it, it has more to do with it very much has to do with gardening, although it doesn't talk about gardening specifically. Mm-hmm. But it has a whole lot to do uh, with um, just how you view things mm-hmm. uh, in life. Uh, and I think a whole lot of being a good and innovative gardener as well as a plant breeder <laughs> much, has as much to do with how you view things as anything else. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that's definitely been important. When it just comes to a uh, uh, solidly informative gardening book that, mm-hmm. that was uh, very important for me to learn on, um, and basically say two things. One of them wasn't a gardening book. I basically learned to garden from uh, the Johnny Selected Seeds catalog. Oh, nice, of course. <laughs> you know, I was in Minnesota at the time, uh, there's no seed catalog that actually gives you greater information about about gardening than those catalogs. And right. There's very few books about gardening do. Uh, now I still consider uh, Johnny Selected Seeds catalogs one of the base best information sources of information for growing things. Nice. Uh, but but um, the book that I always recommend first when it comes to gardening books is. John Jevons's uh, oh, yes. book, uh, How to Grow More Vegetables in Less Space Than You Ever Thought. Thought, possible. yeah, something oh, like wrong, that. Wrong name. Yeah, exactly. Like, and now it's it's increased up to uh, you know, grains and and, right. uh, and fruits and nuts and so forth and so on. But it's it's a book that has got more solid numbers. It is focused completely on. Uh, Double dead, dug uh, mm-hmm. garden beds, intensively planted. Well, if you spread the, uh, the, if you increase the densities a little bit, you can single dig the gardening bed. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you get really solid information about the yields and exactly how to 
do everything, exactly what to- tools to use, how long everything takes, you know, how many minutes it takes to water these beds, right. how many minutes it takes to... Uh, you, it's very rare to find that level of information. Uh, and still the best yield information that you can find yep. for uh, most crops is still that book. Yeah, one of the classics, that is for sure. Yeah. That is for sure. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Uh, do it now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one, you know, people often ask me about what kind of land I have and so forth and so on. And, and I say, well, I've actually never owned a single square inch of good gardening soil. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I do own a, a home at this point, uh, but uh, it's on solid clay, uh, just a few inches of it over uh, bedrock. Uh, and I garden elsewhere. Uh, I've got cooperative arrangements with a local farmer to produce the seed crops that I actually sell. Oh, nice. Uh, but uh, I lease a piece of uh, land that's uh, a few miles from my home. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I found it simply by uh, looking at soil surveys and then going oh, around and, nice. and, and, and putting flyers in the boxes of, of every species, scrap of spare land that was good soil that mm-hmm. was within about a 10-minute drive of where I lived. Uh, and that resulted in being able to lease uh, almost two acres of absolutely prime soil with oh. irrigation. Wow. Uh, uh, quite a lot of people who uh, have small seed companies uh, and ha- who have really contributed a lot to organic uh, research and, and uh, breeding varieties for organic systems uh, actually own little land or actually started off and, and accomplished quite a lot before they ever owned much of anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's what I'd say is do it. Just do it. Do it now, basically. You don't have to have a lot of facilities and uh, you don't have to even own land. Uh, doesn't take a lot of resources uh, you can just go and start somewhere perfect carol thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your gardening experience and your seed saving experience we so appreciate it thank thank you for having me absolutely how can our listeners get a hold of you uh the easiest way to get hold of me is uh carol at resilientgardener.com perfect and your websites is caroldepi.com. That's where my seed catalog is, too. Perfect. Well, that's it for today. Thank you so much for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. 
Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.